Hey guys, welcome back to the Petty Pod, creative conversation in Austin, Texas, where we talk with creatives of all kinds and sorts, pick their brains, find out what motivates them, why they made some great decisions and poor ones, and just get inspired by the people that inspire me. And this episode is a killer one, y'all. I am so excited for it. Before I get into the guests, be sure to follow me on Instagram to check out the story so you can see some video footage from the episode. I am at Neil Petty. That's N-E-I-L-P-E-T-T-Y with an extra Y. It is such an honor to have this next guest on the Petty Pod. I'm going to get serious with y'all for a second. Once upon a time, when I was a wee lad, 1993, Uh, Nirvana was kind of uh, over their peak. Um, The Crow soundtrack comes out, uh, this movie called The Crow. You may have heard of it. And Nine Inch Nails does this cover of this song called Dead Souls, right? And that song, I found out, was performed by a band called Joy Division. Don't make fun of me. I was 13. I didn't know anything yet. Yes, I learned about Joy Division. And when I went to go find out anything I could about this band, I was surrounded by all these black and white photos, one of Ian Curtis smoking a cigarette in a giant German general jacket staring at the camera, and you can just see in his eyes, this is a special guy. What is going on in this guy's mind uh, to be in such an iconic band, which basically inspired Interpol and everything else that you listened to in the early 2000s? Enough about Ian Curtis. Let me get to the guest. <laughs> so who took that photo? His name is Kevin Cummins, and he is my guest. But Kevin Cummins shot way more than Ian Curtis. He really put Manchester on the map, their entire scene. When Kevin was 19, he shot David Bowie at a show, and his career just spiraled from there, shooting for Enemy for over 25 years, capturing Morrissey, The Smiths, New Order, all of my personal favorites. <laughs> uh, and then in through the Madchester baggy era with um, Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, and on through with Oasis, Blur, and the um, wave of British rock that came in the mid-90s. Kevin has been working a long time, and he is one of the most sought-after photographers by all the musicians out there. Since 1999, Kevin has been releasing books, doing gallery openings. He's actually got one in Austin this weekend called But I Remember When We Were Young. It's this Saturday, September 28th at Modern Rocks here in Austin, Texas at Canopy Studios. Uh, The show is around, I believe, 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock. But I know there's a book signing from 3 to 5. Anyway, all his work is there. Be sure to check it out. Shout out Steve Walker from Modern Rocks. Really appreciate all your help putting this together. Steve is also a friend of the pod, and he's got an episode on the pod, so be sure to look him up. Uh, Kevin, also, you know, check out Kevin's books. He's got The Smiths and Beyond, which released in 2002, Manchester, which was a 2009 book, which has the iconic Stone Roses cover with them splattered in paint, um, a Joy Division book, a New Order book, And um, recently, he also did a collaboration with Noah Clothing, one of my favorite bands, uh, brands out of New York, (laughs) fashion brand, actually, uh, that uh, released a series of shirts that sold out super fast, all featuring his photography. I happen to have the one with New Order hanging out by the poolside, and we talk about that shoot in the episode as well. Um, we get into Kevin's uh, grind, you know, going from London to Manchester and back, you know, everything it took for him to build his body of work and how it's propelled him to a successful uh, place that he is today. And, you know, I'm just super honored to have you, Kevin. And I hope you guys out there are going to listen to this one and really take it to heart. This is a great story by a really talented guy. And I'm lucky to have him on. This is Kevin Cummins, y'all, on the Petty Pod. Let's go. Hello, Kevin Cummins. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, Manchester's become a brand name, I think. Yes. And I think, you know, we're all partly responsible for that. Um, and I did a book in England which covered the whole Manchester scene. And from Buzzcocks, 
right through to everyone growing old gracefully and disgracefully. Yes, yes, and in it's the next kind wave. of, you yeah. know, it's... Um, people tell me all over the world, I love Manchester music. And I say, well, you know, there's no link between them all apart from the city. Right. But, I mean, obviously there's a link between Joy Division and New Order because essentially they're the same band. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Manchester, but Manchester has become this brand. I did a, an exhibition in Buenos Aires two or three years ago and everybody, you know, it, it was mayhem. It was like I was the pop star there. It was crazy. I consider you that. I consider people, when they get to know the music industry, I was lucky to kind of dabble in it for a little bit, you realize that it is a, it is a whole sum of a lot of parts and photography is a huge part of that, especially in, in the era that you were in. And still today they try. I like your quote about mysticism and trying to keep the, the mystique alive. But um, I think, um, you know, you were part of really pushing the, the characters out there. And um, I'm just curious, like, uh, when you grew up in Manchester, did you realize, like, when you were young, like, that the city would be anything like it? What, like, what was it like when you grew when Not really, um, because uh, until probably the Sex Pistols played in that, you know, the infamous concert at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester, yep. <laughs> that 50 people were at and 25,000 people claimed to have been at. <laughs> um, it kind of... There wasn't really a scene as such. They, you'd go and see bands, but you'd go and see international bands... You know, and also probably in the late 60s, you'd go to see bands who would maybe play, you know, Hendrix, for instance. Really, came to Manchester, he would play there, yeah. But he'd, play, he'd be on a tour with Lulu and three other bands all on the same bill, and they'd all play like right. 20 minutes each. Sure. They'd do two shows a night. Yeah. And so the first band I saw... Were you I, in the crowd at those, yeah? No, I didn't go to that. Um, but... You know, I was 14, 15, and I, there were two bands. Hendrix was coming to Manchester, and the Bee Gees were coming to Manchester <laughs> at the time of Massachusetts and yeah. that period. And I decided to go and see the Bee Gees. Why'd you pick the Bee Gees? Your uh, well, they were or... originally from Manchester. Oh, okay, okay. I just thought it'd be a great show, and I kind of liked pop music. Yeah. And although I had a couple of Hendrix albums... I did. I couldn't afford both, and I had to make a, de a, a decision, and my decision was the BJ's, and yeah. I'll stick by it. Yeah. And so, when you were going to school there, like, had how did people dress? Like, what was like the style when you were in like high school or grade school? Like people dressed like <laughs> uh, it, uh, in the late sixties. Though you either dressed like a mod. Right. Or like somebody who was into what what was then called underground music, right, right, which was actually progressive prog rock type stuff. Um, and then by 1971, 72, which is when you see, you know we kind of really got into what was then a scene with glam rock, sure. with Mark Bolan. Rod right. Stewart really was part of that. Right. Uh, Bowie, Bowie, Slade, yeah. Cockney Rebel. There were, lo you know, M M Roxy Music. Yeah. Um, and I then people music. started wearing... We used to dress up to go to gigs. I mean, people don't dress up to go to gigs anymore. But, but we that's used so to, cool. But we used to really dress up to go <laughs> yeah. to gigs, you know. Like you had to kind of be part of the... You wanted the to be pack. part of the whole scene. And so when Bowie played in 72, you know, you got your hair hennered and you had your hair cut like Bowie and oh, went to man. the gig. Yeah, That was yeah. it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, we were massively into that scene. And I think in Manchester we were quite lucky because most northern towns had discos where you'd listen to... Barry White and stuff like that. Okay, Northern Towns. Yeah. North, north of London. Yeah. Those were all... Uh, or is this uh, Northern Soul Boys? Is not, that Well, is no, not really. It was just like traditional nightclub stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So you'd go and listen to that. But Why do in, you think they favoured the dance up there, like, in so early? 
like always did i don't know why i think not because you know there's less distractions in yeah out of outside london i think yeah yeah, yeah. and um but two nightclubs in manchester as well as having your traditional disco room also had a bowie and roxy room yeah um, oh wow so that's where we all used to go and punk rock essentially came out of Bowie and glam rock yeah. in Manchester. Buzzcocks were very heavily influenced by that. Yeah. And, you know, all the bands around that time had been part of that scene. Right. Whereas in London, punk came out of pub rock with yeah. um, Eddie and the Hot Rods. Sure. And, and bands like that. Right, right. So when did you... When did you, you went to Salford for photography school... Mm. And um, it seems like, when did you know that was what you wanted to be curious about or learn about? Um, um, well, I photographed Bowie when I was 19. Golly, were you nervous? Like, uh, well, not <laughs> meeting him. I was nervous when I actually eventually met him, but I photographed Bowie in concert for the Ziggy Tour. Yeah. Um, and I realized that I wasn't in the best position for, for a shot I really wanted when he was doing all the mime stuff yeah. to Width of a Circle. Right. And I went to see him about two weeks later in Leeds, yeah. which is about 40 miles from Manchester. And I stood in the right position just to get that shot. Yeah. And that is... It's a shot that's actually on in the exhibition here in Austin. I saw um, yeah. And it's Bowie on stage, and I took it when I was 19. Golly. And so that's... That's when I realized it might be quite nice to photograph rock and roll for a living. Yeah, I mean, did you just stare at that photo for days and you yeah, were Yeah, I was like, really pleased with it. Yeah. yeah. Did you have to get like a special spot? Did you have to know someone like no, to I stand where really, you were standing? No, it was really or? odd actually because, because the Leeds show was... Um, I um, mean, he, he was originally due to play Leeds University, but the stage was too small. Oh, wow. So they put this gig on at a bigger venue towards the end of the tour. Yeah. It was like, I think it was only two shows before he did the Hammersmith Odeon one where he, where yeah. he re, you know, killed Ziggy off. And, right, um, right, right. And it was only half full. So there was, really? I could just stand where I wanted, really. That is so crazy. I went to a show with Elton John in Atlanta not too long ago, and I couldn't believe I walked so close. You know how it is? Like, yeah. you get those spots, and you're like, happens. I can't believe I am so close. Like, mm. you look behind you, and you're like, well, <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> this oh, is no. just how it is. Like, somehow you get that yeah. spot to stand it in. It doesn't happen in London very often. No, no, with the dense clothes. Everywhere is just packed. Yeah. Everywhere sold out years in advance. You know? Yeah, and so what was, so that was, would you consider that the first band you photographed was Yeah, Bowie? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd taken a couple of pictures when I went to see James Taylor and Carol King in concert. Oh, awesome. Um, just to remind year. me that I'd been there, but... They were from so far back, it, you know, yeah. it's like a smudge on a piece of paper. Right, you know. right. So Might be someone's fingerprint, but <laughs> it's, it's actually James Taylor. Oh, man. So real quick, this is completely optional, Kevin, but, like, these are vibes. These are um, electronic emojis. So if, uh, if you feel bored and you don't want to answer a question or you, like, kind of have, like, some sort of... Stick, feel free to... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so, so give me a vibe for taking David Bowie's picture. Oh, okay. Um, oh, yeah, you might. Exactly, a little ambient happy. <laughs> what's this one doing? Oh, that's no words. That's like a muffled... <laughs> All right. There you go. That's like crazy. Oh, we'll get to that. That's the Hacienda. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we have, we have like... Um, I've always had to... I've always had to stay sober and never take drugs and because I'd have lost my camera. And it's, is is that an ethos that you had, like, yeah. going through? You didn't drink no. or... You didn't even drink. No. You just stayed sober. And that, I t when I first serious. started working for the NME, which was, like, you know... The equivalent of Rolling Stone. Oh here. yes, no. I, I mean, it's huge, and everyone enemy. over, you know, everyone knew the enemy growing up. Oh yeah. Um, and when I started working for them, I'd have to shoot a gig, yeah. and get the pictures processed overnight. And the dark room I used was ten miles outside Manchester. Oh man. So I'd kind of hang around with the band for a bit, drive out there, process the pit, process the film, pick the five or six shots that look best, yeah. print those. Two hours later, they're dry. 
then I'd have to drive back into Manchester and put the only way you could get pictures down to London at the time was to put them on the train overnight. We had what? this service called Red Star Parcels. Oh. <laughs> and it used to cost... To the NME office in London? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, to, to Euston Station. Oh, and then sure, someone sure. would have to pick them up. Oh, my God. So it would cost £6.50. In 1977, when I was first started shooting for the NME, it would cost £6.50 to put these on the train. And then I'd get home about five in the morning. Oh, wow. Um, so obviously I couldn't drink or do anything. So you it was know. a process. And then someone had picked them up, hopefully. Uh, yeah, yeah. When it, when it got to the station in London. What it, and then they'd be in next week's paper. Yeah. And um, I would get £6.50 for wow. a picture. So, wow. you know, if they remembered, they'd pay me for the Red Star parcel as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, plan, and it cost, cost me about £20 for film and processing and petrol. <laughs> and I'd earn £6.50. But I kind of thought, <laughs> I'm building an archive, so yes. one day it will be worth it. A body of work. You know, yeah. and I thought, you know, maybe I'll get an enemy cover occasionally. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And, and then, maybe uh, they'll comp your drinks here yeah, and there or yeah. something like that. Yeah. But that, do you feel like that was the thing? Because I, I, I want to get into your motivation and, like, your, your create like what drives you creatively. And I think you think that was the thing that you always had your eyes on was that large but that big body of work yeah that you, did. you you didn't just see one photo as like the job you were looking at is what's kevin cummins a hundred photos look like mm. and um that's a big thing that was really yeah, strong. My, my motivation was i think because i was really into punk as as a scene i was really interested in documenting it and then once I'd done that, because it was quite a short-lived scene, yeah. and once I'd documented that and started to shoot bands who were coming out of that, yeah. I thought, actually, I'm building up a really good archive yeah. here and I need to keep it up. So, when so that was kind of... That's how it started, really. And then, obviously, you know, I just shot everybody. Yeah. Um, and I'd shoot support bands and some... You know, I mean, for every picture that goes in a book, yeah. there's probably about 10,000 that don't. Right, right. And bands people have never heard of, you know. Totally, they come and go. You know, and like... uh, you know who's got all the Alien Tint records, for instance? <laughs> you know, nobody, not <laughs> even <laughs> them. But they were hot for a minute, and Ooh. they were like, they were doing their thing. Um, and another band called Fast Cars, you know, a session with them, and, and there's loads of stuff What did like they that. sound like? Um, well, they were very influenced by Buzzcocks because they oh, okay. looked to Buzzcocks track as their name. Well, there you go. <laughs> Do you, um, how, what was like your, when did uh, the black and white a aesthetic, like did that come from the beginning? Always, did, yeah. That was always something that you, that you yeah, liked. Yeah, but I think, I mean, we always say historically rock and roll has, you know, it has a black and white feel, color, yes. I think. But mainly it was because it was pr for practical reasons. Yeah. There was no point. I mean, it was costing enough. You were paying for your own film and processing. Mm. So it was costing enough to shoot the band in black and white. If you shot it in right. color, nobody would publish it. Nobody was right. publishing in color. Ah, right, right, so right. So the music press published in black and white. No kidding. In England. Right. And it wasn't until probably 1982 that they started to. You use a few pages in the enemy for color, yeah. and then the face started publishing uh -huh. smash hits, and uh -huh. suddenly there was a market for color. For color, and then eventually the weeklies would go color. Oh man! Speaking of enemy, so <coughs> how like how did so you you you're, you're shooting you you get through Salford. Obviously, you were already like driven and trying to get like do it on your own. I'm sure school was kind of just there at the point. And what was the like? How did you get into NME? And how did you start working with? I mean, you described like what a typical job would take, and it it was an all night thing. But when did what was the thing where they NME is great? Like I I got my first one in 1994. Definitely, maybe had just come out. Yeah. Um, there were all these interesting bands. It was just kind of... Mm. Oasis had just started, and I remember being exposed to 
so much of that early 90s British um, rock. And, um, you know, I was like, how, how did I miss this? I liked it better than Rolling Stone, personally. Yeah. Um, but you, how did you get, like, what was this magazine like when you were shooting? Like, how did you get in there? And, like, well, what I was start, this world? I started in um, the middle of 1977. Uh, we had a writer in Manchester called Paul Morley. And I... We did a piece together on the Manchester scene. Oh, cool. So it was... Buzzcocks. Yeah, Buzzcocks. So um, late, late, late 70s. Worst. Like, you know, Joy so... Division. I don't even think we put Joy Division in it. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of some, questions about Joy Division. It's too early for them. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, it, you yes. Know, and, yeah. and it was Howard Devoto who just left Buzzcocks. Oh, right. He was about to form his own band. And Howard was the fulcrum of the piece. Yep. And Paul wrote this piece about how... Howard was currently putting the words of Samuel Beckett to music. Oh, and we wow. were kind of making stuff up and sending it down to the music press. Yeah. And they were too lazy. I mean, you know, you have to think, remember, 200 miles isn't very far when you're traveling around Texas. No. But 200 miles in England is a long way. Yeah. And Manchester to London was like a different, a different, not just country, but a different universe almost. No kidding. Right. And they didn't care. In London, they didn't care what was happening outside London. But they knew there was a scene in Manchester. Yeah. And so they just let us kind of keep them up to date with that. Yeah. It was it was it kind of competitive like around that time? No, not really. No. Um they the kind of, you know, bands would tour obviously, but the the London press was very London centric. Yeah, yeah, they and were they, focused they on just the London. Didn't man. really care what was going yeah. on, so we could tell them things were going on that kind of weren't actually wasn't actually going on, but might might do in a, in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. told them it was, so they started to think Manchester was this massive happening place. Right, right, right. And then it became so. <laughs> but did like did um. What was like? Did you go to the office? Like, were pe were people going mad? Like, they were like, "We have the best music in the world right now." Like, was this? Well, what we was the energy like? We always the... think we've got better music in England than in the states, anyway. I would say, you know, y'all do. <laughs> we just do. I mean, I mean, or um, you know, if it comes from the states, we were very much inspired by someone in England. I mean, you have to remember that bands in England, when grunge was huge here yes we had Britpop breaking through blur and there was very yeah. yeah with blur oasis sleeper uh-huh elastica, elastica bands like that even Love the auteurs you know and gene and there were loads yeah. of bands um in fact i'm doing a Britpop book for next year yeah um, which will be, you know, it's interesting. And by then, too, techno was like established, yeah, yeah. and one of my favorite but cold there was bands. No, but there was, n there was very little interest in Nirvana, and in right. grunge in England, it was right. kind of very underground. Right. Nirvana were on the cover of the Enemy. I remember that once or twice, and before Kurt died, yeah, yeah, you know. Whereas in, you know. We'd put Blur on the cover or Morrissey on the cover every week. Yeah. Did they start just handing you jobs like crazy? Like, were you... Yeah, I started... How many hours a week were you well, putting I moved, in? I moved, I moved down to London in 1987. Okay, okay. And started doing it seriously. Oh, then. okay, okay. I used to probably do half the cover features every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I was traveling all over the world. Then. Okay, so there was a lot of travel at that point. Loads. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, despite traveling all over, the only the only state in America I've ever been arrested in is Texas. Well, uh, you and Johnny Rotten. <laughs> I know. I think I, I'm, mine, I think his was possible. What happened? What did you get arrested I, for? I was driving at 57 miles an hour in a 56 Oh, so, they're serious about that stuff, especially in... But I was arrested in the middle of nowhere between um, between Dallas and Houston. Mm -hmm. And I was driving in Asprey to the gig. He was playing the Enormo Dome in Houston. Oh, my goodness. And he decided he'd rather come with me than in the uh, than in the, on the tour bus. Yeah. Oh, arrested. my gosh. Maybe we were on one of those roads where you can see 20 yeah. miles ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've just got cruise control on and you're not taking any notice and I must have just set it. And a, then, boom, you just get pulled over. And we over. got arrested by this cop who was really bored. Oh, he's very, like, arrested? 
Yeah, properly arrested. Oh, my God. Um, when he found out we were English, it was like we were from another planet. So he arrested us because he didn't know what to do. Oh, yeah, Texas was real bad then. And he, yeah, was, yeah. he was called James Dean and we laughed. <laughs> and he had absolutely no understanding of why we were laughing. He'd never heard of James Dean, the actor. <laughs> Um, so you're like, um, sorry, officer. And he just said, he looked at us and he looked at Ian with his long black hair and he asked him what the name of the band was. Yeah. And he said, the cult. And that was oh kind of the God. worst thing he could say. Uh, yeah. And he looked at him and he, and he said, y'all believe in God. No, you got real. You were in the, what's called the Bible Belt, yeah, right? Huge. Like the stretch from Dallas down to Ooh. here or Houston, and believe it or not, that I-35 corridor, mm. if you keep going to Oklahoma, David, uh, David Byrne used to listen to um, the AM yeah. gospel yeah. Uh, preacher radios, and that's what inspired the Once in a Lifetime yeah. song, yeah. was they were touring through that very that very yeah. stretch where he was probably <clears throat> dead serious. Well, I know. <laughs> James and Dean was dead serious. He was, and he took me to the local police station. Fingerprinted me. Oh my God. Photographed me. And then um, told us that we'd have to wait until Monday because the fuck? court didn't sit. And I said, What he is this horrible. just for speeding? And he, and he said, Yeah, he said, um, You're from another country. I've got to do this. And, um, Are you serious? And, I, and Ian said, Look, I'm due on stage in two hours. There are 10,000 people in there waiting for me. So they had a bit of a chat in the police station and they decided to see if they could call the local magistrate out to try us in the police station. And she turned up in a velour tracksuit and she of was course. really annoyed that she'd been called out on a Saturday early evening. Oh, my God. And she fined me $98. Oh, my God. This is so And we so had 22 annoying. books between us. And they looked at each other and they gave me another lecture and said they could actually keep me in jail. Oh, yeah. But if they, we gave them the $22, they'd let us go and I had to post the rest of the money to them. Oh, my God. And they gave me no receipt. They just trousered what it. What a... And obviously went yeah. to the bar. That's some small-town crooked shit right there. And that was it. But give I still a, got my Polaroid. You got... Give me a vibe for James Dean. Give me a vibe, yeah. <laughs> But I, I've um, I've still got my Polaroid of my my uh, prison. I have to see time. that. Do you remember the town or like the nearby? No, town? I can't remember the name. I gotta of the know town. this when you know, ever, you gotta you gotta tell Steve and let me know mm. this. Oh my goodness! Um, so I wanted I, I gotta take a second. Well, the next time I came into Texas to photograph Robert Smith and the Cure. I was yeah. really worried that I might get arrested because I'd never sent them the rest of the money. <laughs> You're like, nah, fuck that. This I is know, Texas, man. I know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Oh, man. Um, so I want to talk about um, Joy Division uh, for a second. Like, one of my favorite bands, You, I told you how I discovered them. Um, they, they, them uh, into New Order, them the Smiths, um, but Joy Division particularly, uh, what was it like being in the room, like, around these guys? Because they seem like... I've never seen a band where, unfortunately, you know, Ian, you know, what committed suicide, but it was like this immediate segue to New Order. The first demos of New Order mm. sound exactly like Joy Division. Like, you could mistake them. Well, that first this. album's a Joy Division album. It really is. It was, like, it was written for yeah. um, Ian to, to sing. And they all sang on it. You know, yeah. Had, so. But what was that band? What were those guys like? <laughs> well, we had a, you know, I, I wanted to always make them look like very serious young men. Yes. Because I thought... The snow the music, shots. The music was like that. And I wanted... The pictures to reflect, yes. kind of. You, I wanted you to look at those photographs and know what they sounded like, right? Because at the, in those days you couldn't just go on YouTube, you couldn't listen to that band if you yeah. lived outside of the UK, right? And you could only listen to them if they played live or if John Peel played one of the records, right? But you, you know, you had to search it out in those days, yes. And when you saw those photographs. 
that would tell you whether you were going to like them or totally, not. Totally, because this is also in your style where you started getting glimpses of Manchester, mm. like uh, the the field. I think it was a track or a soccer field, mm. and like long the long shot where they're all look leaned over, mm. and what looks like um, like a lot of very industrial like architecture starts to come into play. Well, I think it's important with to, your shots, yeah, to not just to locate the band. In, in that period, or their own city. But also, um, the music was very urban. They hadn't had any experience of life outside of that. Right. They did, you know, until they were in the band, they'd rarely travelled. Right. You know, um, Ian had been to Paris on his honeymoon. Sh but they'd never really been anywhere else. Right. They it were was very expensive to travel in the UK. We didn't just go down to London every week for a sure. night out. Right, right. Whereas now it's very cheap to travel yeah. all over the world. You'd, but you couldn't do it there. But they were in a bubble and yeah. like. And I wanted this to is kind of like they were yeah. And also, a lot of the music, punk was. Punk and post punk was kind of music that was coming out of your own life experiences. And you hadn't really had many life experiences at 19. Right. You lived in Manchester and you thought it was, this was a dirty, grey city that was still kind of showing the after effects of World War Two. Right, right. People were angry still. You know, they hated their environment. Was that the vibe of the town in, yeah. like, 1980? Like, yeah. people were... Was there... It was, was so economically, different. Was there some economic... What was the economic... Still the blowback from World War Two. Yeah. And yeah. also the economics of the UK was that all the money went to London. To London, yeah. And everything else was forgotten about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and how is Bernard, like, a young, young, young Bernard? Like, was he just kind of a... Well, they were, quite, they were kind of fun, you know, and yeah. they would laugh a lot, and I'd have to stop them laughing for the photographs. Oh, they were a little goofy. <laughs> yeah, and they'd be playing around all the time. You I know. saw the one, like, it was in a house or some sort of inside a studio or yeah. a house or something, and I think you have the one shot where they're all kind of cutting yeah. loose. Yeah. But, um, but like I said, the, the, the shot with Ian with the cigarette... Um, well, they were trying to make him laugh while I was doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I just kept saying to them, look, please stop because it's freezing and we need to finish this and go somewhere warm <laughs> and sit in the pub and do the interview. Were you, were these like, was it like being around friends with them and, yeah. or, or was it, was it yeah, something we were all you quite, were, no, we were all quite You didn't have friendly. to prepare yourself to be around no, not these guys. At all. No, because we'd all grown up going to see gigs together pretty much. Oh, cool. So you recognize We all them. knew yeah. each other. And so every, it, it, Manchester's a small city. Right. I suppose in a way it's like Austin. In the if, totally. If you're into a certain kind of music, you see the same people all the time at mm -hmm. those gigs. They might not be your totally friends, was. but you know them because they go to the same gigs as you. Yeah. And that's pretty much what Manchester was like. Did you feel like it was getting bigger? Like, was it... No, not really. No, there was, was a nucleus just... of about 50 people who went to see every gig. Yeah. And you'd see them all the time. And, you know, Joy Division would maybe play to 400 people in Manchester. Wow. And maybe it. in London. But you could go 20 miles outside Manchester to Huddersfield or Halifax or any of the surrounding towns. Yeah. And they'd be lucky to get 100 people there. Right, right, right. And then the Smiths. Uh, what a sound. Like, again, I was lucky to find the discover the Smiths. Let me know if you want another beer, too, by the way. I, no, I'm okay. Thanks. All right, cool, cool. Um, and there's a water right there. If you need it. Um, I was lucky to discover the Smiths at the same time. The chorus pedal, I was a guitar oh. kid, and, like, the chorus pedal on all the licks, Johnny Marr, um, played what I called, like, uh, ambient country mm. and, like... Um, a style that I had never heard before. And honestly, you know, I wasn't as into the aggressive grunge that was yeah. going on. I felt like the lightheartedness of the Smiths and uh, and New Order, like, play, like they played just really lighthearted. Well, light, they had a pop aesthetic. Lighthearted stuff, yeah. but like, but you... you but it was clever. Yeah, yeah, but it was clever and like sometimes sad lyrics but still it was a beat and also you'd got you'd suddenly got a period in england which i kind of blame on the fact that a couple of magazines published a lot of stuff in color that yeah. it attracted 
the new romantic bands like yeah. not just Spandau, but bands like Spandau. bands like Joe Boxers and you know, there's some awful, awful bands. Uh, Delamitri and all these bands. But I love who, that stuff, man. Who, like, they're the all time, like trying. Yeah, but like. <laughs> at the time, at the time, it was a really fallow period in yeah. England for music. And then the Smiths and the Jesus and Mary Chain came along. Yes. Both doing something very different. Right. And kind of rescued music. So what was it like photographing Morrissey the first time you did? Uh, well, well, it was quite interesting because first Smiths... What year was it? 81? 83. I did, a, I did a, what was supposed to be oh their God. first NME cover. <laughs> and obviously I didn't feel the Smiths were into urban alienation. Oh, sure. And I photographed them lying around in a park with a fountain and, yeah. um, you know, very... Lots of grass. Lot. It was great. It was. Yeah. It was kind of um, um, a pastoral scene. Yeah, yeah. And they were great. And they kind of like a lot of young bands. When you first photograph them off stage, they just line up like they're on stage. Oh, they sure. They go in the same positions, doing the same you know? thing that they. And know. so you have to kind of move them around and get them to do stuff. But you know, Morrissey kind of. St- steals every picture uh-huh. because he's the one he's the singer you know yeah. that's what singers do um and the others kind of lie around and then morris is the one who's very very sure of himself did you feel like they were the band that were trying to really make you start doing that kind of thing like arrange them find locations they challenge you to start telling a story um, I think I'd, I'd already done that with uh, yeah, Joy Division I'm, I'm anyway. Way late in your, I think yeah, you know. Yeah. I think I think the Smiths just offered something different, um, <clears throat> and Morrissey was always great to photograph. You know, he was a very different person to the person he is today, shall we say? <laughs> and I I toured with Morrissey, and I've done tour brochures for him, yes. and I did a Morrissey book that came out last year. And I photographed Morrissey a lot, and he was very demanding, but in a very pleasant way. Yeah. He kind of, he always wanted to try new ideas for pictures. Yeah. And he loved having his picture taken, and we did a lot of good work together. Yeah, yeah. And I will always say that we have done a lot of good work together, Um, you know. That's a cool way to put it, and I've never heard it that way. Like, I just got perspective just now about how the relationship between the photographer and the artist, like, it still goes on today with, you know, some hip-hop folks mm. like Future and, like, um, you know, these these guys, they have their person that they have, like, right along and with them. And that's how it should be. And yeah, then yeah. you build up a good relationship. Yeah. And you're all as important Mutual. in telling the story, really. Yeah. And it irritates me slightly when people say, well, you can't take a bad picture of Morrissey. And you say, well, oh, I you know, know Google Morrissey and you'll see a million bad pictures. Yeah, yeah. You know, there some photographers work well with certain artists and some don't. Similarly with when I, you know, when I was shooting Joy Division and like you were talking about earlier, what motivated you, you know, and there were loads, there's loads of people, you know. Yeah. People say, well, you know, you were the only person around at the time. You were really lucky. And I said, there were two million other people in Manchester. I have to be. It's not luck. It's yeah. It's just absolute determination that you want to do what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you've got to be dedicated. And if that dedication costs you money at the time, then just still carry on. Do something else to get some money. Sure. Sell the odd print. You know, yeah. finance what you're doing in that way. But, you know, it, it's you to push nothing, nothing falls into your lap. No, no. It might do later in life, but you've built the groundwork for it. Yeah. You know, and I don't think people appreciate that quite often. It's like hard work. Is like this ethos behind. It's hard work working with musicians. Oh yeah, I mean anybody. Yeah, as all the time. Yeah, but especially the folks you were. My favorite of Morrissey that you did is where he's far away and it's the silhouette and with a little piece of architecture. That to me could be like a movie poster. Yeah, like it is so good. It's a lovely picture. It is so good. It kind of captures the north really well. That is a great with an iron bridge. That's an iron bridge. Okay, yeah, yeah. Cobbled. Oh, Brava man. Hill, and yeah. he looks like 
He could be Billy Fury, yes. or he could be a superhero. Anthony, it could be anybody. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it and it's just got a really lovely feel to it. That yeah. Show. And what uh, was that? Just part of a series, or was that uh, for NME? Um, it was. It was for NME, but it was yeah. also for him. Yeah. Oh man, that that I I'm felt surprised like... it's not been on his record sleeve because it's been it could on be. so many magazine and book covers. It, I don't know why it wouldn't be because it, it makes a perfect album cover yeah, or some sort of shirt yeah. or like maybe well, the book maybe covers. you've had a shirt or two out. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, we'll get into the Noah thing yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I, I loved it, but the um uh okay so. What's cool to me, looking at your career, it seemed like you just kept pushing through the Smiths handoff through like 1987, and then 87, you start to get into like, all right, so one of my favorite cult bands is 808 State. Mm. I love those guys. Um, I mean, I know they're like straight up techno, but I felt like them getting started and then New Order starting to Mm. kind of get into the... um, the baggy, the Manchester. The, this was the music that was like my morning. Yeah, like, but I, I think New Order had made the laid the groundwork for def- that by definitely. <coughs> yeah, they spent with, a lot of time uh, in New technique York. Was definitely yeah. the. And they spent a lot of time in New York, and they worked with Arthur Baker. Did you go with them out there? Yeah, when yeah, in '83. Yeah. Did you go with them in the studio? No, or? Oh, nothing more boring than <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> I would band. hate being in the studio as a photographer. I spend <laughs> I, I most of my my life I've spent sitting in hotel lobbies waiting for bands to turn up. Yeah. So going in a studio while they're working. No. Did you start how would what was your process for starting to scout cities that you had never been in and location? Would you just like call friends on the phone like, hey, what's a good seat? Well like, sometimes people would tell you and you yeah. also, you know, you you just want I, architecturally, I didn't, you know, if I'm photographing someone in New York it's not difficult to give it a New York feel. Sure. I mean, my, right. my, my main thing with music photography is I always felt it should be all be taken at dusk or in the evening because that's when musicians are most alive. Ah. But it's also when they're on stage. Sure. And so you end up doing pictures in daytime, which is a bit alien to them. Sure. Because they don't really like going out in daylight. Right, they're, dre- they're vampires, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, which yeah. Which is a shame, really, because I... And also, the enemy was pr- printed on newsprint. So anytime we did anything at night, it looked terrible in the paper. Oh, sure, Because sure. it just started looking like a grey splodge. Because it was uh, dot, it, dotted, yeah, like that dotted print. Yeah, because yeah. it just couldn't cope with anything <laughs> dark. So you always had to make it very contrasty as well. But I applaud you. Why? I would think, this is crazy, and you can totally like tell me, Neil, shut up. But I would think that when the Manchester baggy stuff started coming around, like the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, and, um, you know, more of the, the, the post-New Order, the late New Order, like this whole baggy sound, I would think you would start to turn your nose at that. No, but not you, at all, no. But this was actually like your biggest <coughs> other wind of, ca- mm. of your work was this is when you start capturing this entire, like, and also, Well, also, it was a slight challenge as well because I was used to shooting in black and white, yeah. Um, and I'd done some nice New Order stuff in colour, but I still mixed it with black and white. But with uh, the Mondays and Stone Roses and music like that, um, you know, the music changed. It was more psychedelic. The drugs changed, which made e- the music ecstasy. more psychedelic. Yeah, yeah. And I felt it really needed colour to work. Right. Because they were seeing an array of colours that didn't even exist. Yeah. So (laughs) I had to use colour to make that work. And normally if I'm using colour, I'll use a really refined colour palette. But with the roses and the Mondays, I felt it needed a lot of colour throwing at it. Right, right. And that the Happy Mondays with the paint is Stone Rose. No, that was Stone Rose. Yeah. Excuse me. That was a amazing cover where color is definitely just yeah. just awesome. And also, um, you know, I wanted to do because I felt that by happenstance, as you say over here, <laughs> the, um, Random. the the. the Joy Division picture on the bridge became uh, an era-defining photograph and also the photograph that defined the band. Uh, By accident, really, I felt I wanted to do um, a 
defining photograph of a band from this period. Sure. And the Stone Roses one was perfect for that. Yeah. Because I wanted John Squire, who did their covers in that Jackson Pollock style, yeah. to paint the band for me. Yeah. And it could have been disastrous, but it wasn't. It worked brilliantly. And I felt, you know, if I'd have been in an, another photographer who had to photograph the Stone Roses two weeks later, I'd have said, well, there's no point because where can you go after that picture? Right. You know, that picture defined the band. So there's, there was never any point in Dude, shooting you're them right, again. you're right, man. You know. And Isn't it their album cover? One of their album covers like, been, is yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah, also, yeah. you know, I photographed Rennie's hat as a standalone oh, object. The and that hat. has been <laughs> two record sleeves, you oh, know. Man. And it's kind of nice. And we had to turn a studio into a polythene cube to make this photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had this kind of romantic idea that once I'd got them into position, John would paint them. Yeah. But what he actually did was he opened a gallon tin of paint and threw it across them and started doing that. And he had um, a kind of squirty thing bottle. and he'd With the other colours. And he'd squirt that across them to do <laughs> the lines. And I was telling him where to put certain lines, which yeah, worked yeah, for yeah. me. And then, you know, we just built the shot up like that. And then at the end of the session, they'd been lying in this paint in November for two hours. And <laughs> they needed to wash it off. And I had to tell them that because they'd insisted on doing this shot on a Sunday, the shower room wasn't open. Nowhere else was open but this one room. What? And they were really annoyed. They put handprints all down the stairwell oh, of the studio. Oh, you know they trashed the boy. And, uh, and, um, and then they went round to Ian's in the van and had to kind of shower each other and get all this off. Oh, my God. That's so good. But that was, like, a defining thing. Like, how did you prepare yourself for shoots? Like, like what was your routine? Were you, like, go to bed early? Like, I mean, you weren't a... But I guess you're still, like, you weren't drinking or anything. You were just, like... No, I'm... I mean, I'm... <laughs> hanging out. Because at this point, people know you as Kevin Cummins. Yeah. Probably in the better of part of Manchester <laughs> and London. But I, I was living in London then. Yeah. So were you I, in Shoreditch or...? <clears throat> no, I live in South London. Oh, it's South London, And yeah. I had to come up to Manchester to do the shoot. Yeah, yeah. Because that's where they wanted to do it. Oh, that was So I had to find a yeah. studio in Manchester that would let me work on a Sunday. Sure, sure. And then just stay overnight. And oh, nice. Do the picture, you know, and it kind of it worked. I mean, you know, it worked yeah, and it looks yeah. great, and I'm really pleased with that. Were you around? The I've still got a bit of blue paint on my house. I'm sure. <laughs> Even though I've wrapped it in polythene, <laughs> you've tried everything to get it out. It's like, hey, do it for the job. Yeah, nice. So the Madonna, the Madonna shot you had was that from the hacienda? Yeah. That was her performance there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, did you hang around there a lot? Yeah, was that, I used to. You there? Used to, yeah, because obviously um, it was factory records. Yeah, yeah. And it used to be a kind of. First, it was like a drop-in sensor for factory records employees and their mates. Yeah. No one else went to the hacienda. Oh, and sure. We'd been to I, when I was in New York in July '83. You got to dance a tear. New the... order. We would. We were. We. Ruth Polsky, who ran Danceteria, was also Factory's agent. Yep. And oh, whoa. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Because I just read the BC Boys book. Oh, okay. Which is like, got a huge section on Danceteria. Yeah. And I've been trying to draw the parallels oh, between... Oh, well, also, when you look at Desperately Seeking Susan, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ruth, Ruth painted the pillars in Danceteria in Hacienda Colors. What? Okay, okay. So that they'd okay. have to use it for the movie. There we go. Oh my gosh. And um and then so we were we were there on the roof at Danceteria because Ruth was a good friend of everybody's. Oh nice. And yeah. we and she said, Oh, we've got a PA on the roof in a bit with Madonna. And we just about heard of Madonna. She'd just done a couple of she yeah. mainly on black radio stations in New York. Yeah. And she did this and there was probably about fifteen people on the roof. New order. Sure. Was, was there? Um, a guy, I think it was Ian Birch from Smash Hits. And no that was about shit. it. And it New was just Order us. was there? Yeah. No. And that's why <laughs> Rob Gretton, who was New Order's manager, said to Madonna afterwards, so we had a party then in Ruth's office. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, I've got photographs of um, 
Oh, don't you don't have to go. I've got, I've got anyway. So we had a party in in. Give me a vibe for dance it here, real quick. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're jamming out there. And um, that's so cool. And we've got. Um, and Rob said to Madonna, "Look, um, that was great. Why don't you come to my club and do a PA?" And she said, "Where's that?" And told her, and she said, "Yeah, sure." And then, of course, she had a hit. Yeah, get into the and groove. Then, or um, a Manchester, like yeah. um, a, a, a British TV station wanted to do uh, wanted to film the Madonna piece. That's so cool, man. So they kind of built a program around it. Um, yeah, she yeah. danced and did a PA on the dance floor at Hacienda. Was there was there a lot of stuff at Hacienda that was sort of like filler? Bands and loads of it, yeah, yeah, it like a, sort of. But it was a terrible shots venue, in the dark, terrible venue. Yeah, for I bands. heard that. It just was the not. Sound was awful. It was not. So ideal. once it became more of a proper nightclub, and they kind of, you know, all the, the house music reinvented it. Really, yeah, a uh, guy then, called Gerald. Yeah, yeah it just yeah. became huge. Yeah, towards yeah. the end of the eighties, for two years, it was the biggest nightclub in the world. Sure, and that's not exaggerating. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was bigger than any nightclub in Ibiza. It was bigger than any nightclub in New York. Right, it was absolutely huge, and we got. Marshall Jefferson, we'd use, any DJ wanted to DJ in a house. Sure, end, sure. Everyone came over and yeah. played it. You didn't photograph a lot of DJs. You kind of stuck with Well, there's with not the... really much point. They yeah. play records. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. It's like, you know, it's like photographing photographers. <laughs> Which got, we did. <laughs> I've got, you know, I'm not, no, I'm joking really, but I think <laughs> that um, it's difficult photographing DJs, you know. They're playing records in the dark most of the time. Yeah, right. And I've got a few. You know, I've kind of got whoever DJed with Curtis Blow, and I've got oh, that's funny. Mike Pickering, and I've got Marshall Jefferson. I've got a few people DJing, but to be honest, it was more about the music they were playing sure. and the way people were dancing that was more interesting. Right, right. The scene as a whole. Yeah. They were just a component Yeah, they were facilitating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like DJ now is like this way bigger thing now. Well, it was huge then. I mean, you know, people used to get paid 100 grand for coming over and doing a gig. still then, no kidding. Yeah. Wow, man. It It was the first era of the superstar DJ, I think. Right, right. Well, I loved techno because I loved 808 State. Uh, they had Bjork on their tra- early tracks. Yeah. Um, they had that very big sort of like. Oh, one thing I meant to ask you about before I was about to skip over it. The the style of New Order, the Smiths. I always loved how they wore like the preppy Oxford shirts. Like they all wore Oxford shirts. They looked like proper kind... Well, they were all in good shape and, like, whatever. They all look great. But, like, I, I kind of always... They, that cut through the noise for me for, like, mm. in a big way when I, I was absorbed in, like, grunge and, like, all the, like, other stuff that was in the States. But I always admired how these guys always... Like, even Bernard and Joy Division mm. had an Oxford shirt tucked in, mm. fitted pants, like, dressed up, but not. But dressed... It was Why kind of, did they do that? Because like, we didn't have any money. That was just like... So it was like... What the, was the, It was like the, the, the stuff he'd worn at school. Yeah, it was school or, clothes. Or yeah. his first year in an office. Yes, it was like... It was all we knew. Yeah, it was like... I'm the entry level employee. Yeah, yeah. And Morrissey did it. Yeah. Mar did it. And then they all, all had kind of army coats because it was cold in Manchester and it rained. Yeah. And they would wear the big army yeah. jacket with the like real preppy. Like yeah. it was just it was just yeah. like an Oxford t-shirt. Yeah. It was very normal. And I was wondering if that was influenced from mod or was that like a b- rebellion from the the more punk like Susie and the Banshees like very extremist sort of stuff but yeah. like it was just like what they had it, it was what they had no kidding that is crazy <laughs> I was uh, expecting some cool like statement out of it but all right we're we're almost there all right yeah no, I've got to go in a bit but okay cool cool okay. um so you shoot Oasis you get into the Brit pop and and you have some amazing photos there but um I. I think you deserve extremely great praise because through the 70s and through the 80s and 90s, 
99 hits and you have a feature in the National Portrait Gallery. You have um, a series of books coming out and that body of work that you had in your head when you were spending, getting paid six pounds for every <laughs> photo to schlep around, London, around the UK. Your body of work finally comes back to you between like the 2000 up until now. Mm. And you have so many books. You have Juvenis, and, uh, which is going for like $1,400 oh, online. Oh, no. um, oh, no. You have The Smiths and Beyond. You have Joy Division. You, and then your Manchester book with the cover um, with Stone Roses on it. Mm. I, I think, how does that feel knowing that like you put in this two decades work and then a full decade where you're in the National Portrait Gallery, man? Yeah, like, and, and the Bowie picture that I took when I was 19 the Victoria and Albert Museum bought that from me as well mm. and then used it in the Bowie exhibition. My favourite museum in the world. And it yeah. was, and it's great. And it's, it kind of, it, you know, validates what I spent a long part of my life doing. And it's quite nice that I don't have to spend all my time in hotel lobbies waiting for bands all the time. And, you know, I will still shoot certain people if I'm interested in them. But, uh, you know... It's nice to have books, good to, great having exhibitions, because you then start to get out and meet the people who grew up looking at your photographs. Yep. And that's really interesting for me too. Yep. And it's really interesting when people say how certain pictures touch their lives, how they got into a band because of that. And, you know, I met a guy at a Latin American symposium in London, and he, he, was, he, was, he was a lecturer and writer from Santiago in Chile. And he said to me, he said, his question was, how does it feel to take two of the most important photographs of the 20th century? And I laughed, you know, but he <laughs> said, no, I'm serious. He said, if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be doing the job I'm doing now. He said, the fact that I had to wait, I saw your photographs of Joy Division and I had to wait six months to get hold of a copy of their record and somebody sneaked it into Chile on a cassette for me and he said and it changed my life and he said and I wouldn't have known who they were until I saw that picture he said that made me more interested in them and stuff like that and you know it's great and it's it's it wow. validates what you do wow. and I think it's great that so many people are really into the art of music photography these days because when I first started it was always seen as juvenilia. It was seen as something you did when you were younger and then you'd grow out of it and get a proper job. Well, here I am, you know. No, no, no. And that's my job. Uh, but I think, do you think sometimes that you captured an era and I really like what you said about how you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have all these outlets for artists. You had to really encapsulate what Manchester mm. meant in one shot. Do you feel like the... It's kind of like having to work hard with the tools you have. Usually so, yeah, absolutely. Is, is really like what puts you where where you are. And I, I agree with everything the guy from Santiago said. Like you, you definitely did. Yeah. You know, it's it was very difficult, and it's and the problem was, I always felt that we were building iconography, and I felt that was really important. And I think, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to say it was better in my day because obviously I use digital, I shoot on digital. I love the instantaneousness of it. I love the, the la I, I love the latitude you get with yeah. digital as well. But because photography has become something omnipresent, it has taken away some of the mystique of it. Because when we were shooting for the NME, we were, you know, the dressing room was sacrosanct. You, you felt honoured if you were invited into right. a dressing room before a gig or something. And now bands are routinely photographing themselves in the dressing room, yeah. photographing themselves going on stage, photographing everything they Every do. Every single moment. And yeah. so there will never be that kind of rock iconography anymore because so. there's too much of it. Right. And it's not an age thing. And I don't think, it, you know, it, it's, it's because what, what has happened with digital is we've become the new Victorians. When photography became a mass market tool in the late 19th century, everybody took 
hundreds of photographs, not just of their family, but of their streets, of their locale, of everything. Right. And there was so much of it. And then gradually they learn how to use, that, use it and edit themselves. And at the moment, people don't edit themselves. Everybody's got, and I'm as guilty, I've got 35,000 pictures on my iPhone. Sure. You know, I don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem is, when you delete them, you're then losing your own archive. Right. But we will. You lose your phone, you've lost them all. You've got them on the cloud. You don't even know how to download them. Right. It's kind of, we, we are taking too many photographs and people need to edit themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I see people who shoot at gigs and they'll say, Do you, will you look at my pictures? And I look at them, and they've taken 3,000 pictures of a gig. And I say, well, can you just show me the best 10? And sure. they say, but they're all great. And I say, no, uh, actually, they're not. Right. And then they go, oh, well, fuck you, you know. <laughs> and I say, well, I can't look at 3,000 pictures no. of a gig. And also, too, because that's what, like, what do you, as the shooter, as the artist behind the camera, feel is the best 10? You like, know, when I, well, exactly. When I used to shoot bands on film, I would shoot maybe one, maybe two rolls of film. Yeah. 36 or 72 pictures. Yeah. And I'd choose the best five and then file them away. Yeah. And I, that's, edit, that's how editing works. Yeah, yeah. I don't just say, here's 3,000, use them They're all. They're all great. Or post all 3,000 yeah. and embed your feed. Oh, no, sorry, but... Oh, man. And so that's kind of what it's like. We're taking too many pictures at the moment yeah. and not structuring it that well. And I think people need to start thinking about editing. It'll come because they will start thinking about it. But at the moment, totally. at the moment it's not quite there. Yeah. Well, I gotta go let you go soon, but before you run, I gotta ask you about the Noah collaboration. <laughs> well, I'm wearing the uh, the New Order poolside. Actually, it's a color photo. I know, but um, how did that happen, and why did you agree to work with such a cool brand? I'm just like out of nowhere. I I, I was a fan of them before, and I was like, holy shit! I <laughs> I like cool brands, and sometimes yeah. I think you know if somebody comes up with an idea. Uh, and I'm interested in collaborating with them. And if they make a mess of it, that's tough luck. You know? <laughs> and if they don't, it looks great. And I think yeah. they look great. Um, so those cool. pictures of New Order were the first New Order pictures in colour, really, because um, they they looked like... I wanted to... It, it was first their first proper American tour in, eight, in 83, and I wanted it to look something like... David Hockney style. Oh, yeah. Britons in yes, America. Totally. And that was the feel for it. Dude, and everyone yeah. <laughs> And everyone thinks they were shot by the pool in LA and they were shot in DC in the Holiday Inn. <laughs> <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> but it looks like LA. And I, um, I deliberately keep the film sockets on it to yeah. give it that LA feel. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad so you put like it on. So it looks like a movie. I'm glad you put it on. I'm glad you work worked with them, um, it seemed like they really believed in you, and I think yeah, they had a lot of British good. roots. Yeah. And um, I, how, um, if, what, I guess, as an established artist um, who has a brand approach them, would you give someone advice on how to communicate their intent to work with you on, like, a, a t-shirt collab or something like that like what was it about it that I, do, I usually just say to them let's see what you're gonna do yeah yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't interfere it's like if a, a publisher wants to work on a book I'll work closely with them yeah. I mean David Bailey said to me never work with designers they just get in the way <laughs> um, <laughs> I can and I can see that. that sometimes but also I think if you're working with a brand then they want to put their imprint on it as well. And so it's a nice collaboration. And I think, you know, they work well and they sold out in two hours. So Yes, they you know, sold out they like very quick. Sold out I before barely I could got get, this before shoot. I could get one. <laughs> Give me a vibe for Noah clothing collab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Kevin Cummins, this is amazing. You have a opening at um, Modern Rocks this weekend, Saturday, the twenty-eighth. I believe, and anything else you want to plug? Anything else that you want? I've got, I've brought 25 boxes of postcards over of Joy Division, 
New Order Smiths. And Bands that are my I don't favorite. want to take them back to England, so uh, buy them. Uh, I will be pumping it up. I'm bringing friends. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, yeah, this era of music, I can only just leave you with this, um, made me more intelligent. I wasn't... S- I was able to show my friends something different. Therefore, like, my friends were always like, Neil knows what's different. And it came from the Smiths. It came from New Order. It came from Joy Division. Um, I know I was a little later to the game, um, but I just want you to know but this. But you weren't born. Uh, I wasn't <laughs> born yet. Well, yeah. I was born in 80. Yeah. But when I was 13, it got around. Yeah. But, but um, you're not going to listen to Closer when you're six months old. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my mom was. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think it was your image uh, to bring them closer to us. And I, th- and I think myself and anybody out there can just say thank you, salute, and appreciate everything you've done. And this is an honor to have you. Great. Thanks very much. Take care.